The movie is atmospheric and euphoric, uplifted by hope, optimism, and greatness. Air goes off running, takes flight, hits slam dunks, and walks on air. Victoriously heartfelt and hard won, it's a riveting crowd pleaser. That's from Nathalia Arani of the movie Maven. Movie getting rave reviews. It's our new movie this week, and it's called Air. But this is honestly the month where all the guests come out here on Cinephile, and man, are we loaded today. Michael Shannon, Waco, The Aftermath, is available on Showtime this week, and Michael is here after much hype. I told you I do, to, you know, I give up a limb for him, and so he's here. We've also got, from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is on Amazon Prime this Friday, its final season, two great stars, Emmy Award winner Tony Shalhoub and Kevin Pollack, and also Ben Schwartz is in the new movie Renfield, starring Nicolas Cage. That opens in theaters this Friday. He's very funny. He's got great stories working with Nicolas Cage, Jim Carrey, and all his voice work, and Parks' rec as well. Chris, loaded episode this might be i mean i know you've had some huge names but if you want to talk about putting together one episode with multiple guests the most star-studded episode in the history of cinephile i mean ben schwartz is like fourth here and he is one of my favorite dudes you watch parks and rec if you're into comedy this dude is and and if you're into voiceover work like that that's just ben schwartz i haven't even gotten to the three other but like michael shannon is just legitimately one of my favorite actors like this this is crazy honestly by the way this is just flying off of last week of course we had two great guests as well and jeremy piven had him for 30 minutes and jim belushi hopefully everybody enjoyed that comedy episode and next week here we go. Ray Romano is going to join us. Chris is, uh, I guess, through Christie's family member, but he's a member of your family, too. I mean, he's yeah. your wife's family. Ray Romano, family member of the Cody's, is going to join us, as well as Monica Bellucci. That's right. I, I mean, Cupid shot me with an arrow with Monica Bellucci's name on it like 30 years ago, and now I get to interview her. I cannot wait to talk to Monica Bellucci and Catherine Hardwick, the director of the new film Mafia Mama. That opens in theaters this Friday. So next week, Ray Romano, Monica Bellucci, Catherine Hardwick, and... Two weeks from now, we just recorded with George Tillman. He's the director of Big George Foreman. In case you missed last week, that's my debut in a feature that's, film. It's too much, at man. To You're throwing too much at them right now. We'll get to George Tillman when we get to him. Yeah, George Tillman in a couple <laughs> of weeks. He was awesome, though, and he's got great he stories great. from Big George Foreman. Let's get right to it, though. Uh, let's talk about Air, and then we'll get to Shannon and all these guests. Air is fantastic. What a return to form for Ben Affleck. As Jim Miller said recently on Cinephile, it makes you realize you just wish Ben Affleck had directed more movies along the way. This is the story of Nike and... And what I think is one of the more remarkable achievements of the film is that this is a story of rich people, rich white people, who are drafting a black kid and making money off him, and he's making money in the process, and yet it feels like an incredible underdog story. I mean, Nike is this monolithic corporation for which people can be very critical of, the fact that, you know, slave labor to make their shoes, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, Affleck is somewhat able to make these guys heroic and interesting and entertaining, and it shows us a different time and place in the world. And he does so with excellent location scouting and obviously a great job with the decor, production design, cinematography, and also the music. I mean, the movie starts out, boom, he's showing clips from the 80s. What makes you think of the 80s? You're seeing Cabbage Patch dolls. You're hearing music uh, from Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. Excellent 80s soundtrack, wall-to-wall, big country, you name it. It's all in there. And so he starts out this film. It's this little thing called Nike, which at the time was a distant third. Like Converse was was well ahead of it. Adidas was well ahead of it. Adidas had the best shoe, but Converse had the big stars. They had Larry Bird, they had Magic Johnson, they had Julius Irving. So Nike Nike was running a distant third 
which is just tough to comprehend. And here comes Matt Damon playing Sonny Vaccaro, who is this talent scout, a guy who knows high school basketball. He's been hired by Phil Knight, Ben Affleck playing the CEO, to try to find the next big thing. And they really establish the currency well. That There's a scene here that's showing the NBA draft projected order. And Jason Bateman plays, who's terrific in the movie. The whole cast is excellent. Bateman plays one of the VPs. And he's explaining, saying, all right, we're not going to be able to afford Elijah Wan. We're not going to afford Sam Bowie. But which of the other guys do you want to try to get? We're not going to be able to get Jordan. He's going number three to the Bulls. Who else do you like? And the guy starts talking, okay, maybe John Stockton. Where's Gonzaga? I couldn't find Gonzaga. Where that could be? And afterwards, Damon's like, no, no, we, we, I don't understand the budget here. It's $250,000 being spread upon three people. He's like, yeah. He's like, we're just going to be, essentially, it's kind of like interesting the fact they mentioned Gonzaga because it's like a mid-major. That's what they're trying to do. Rather than go after a star, they're going to try to get a few different players hope one of them hits. And there's a terrific scene where Damon's talking to Affleck saying, hey, Phil, we have to make a push. And again, this is where Nike was so different from what it is now today. It was a running shoe. It was known for people running. And Affleck's explaining to him, like, no, it's a running shoe. It's not a basketball shoe. We barely have a basketball division. It's hanging by a thread. The NBA files are on tape delay. Nobody cares about basketball, dude. Like, whatever. Like, we're, we're a shoe company, which is running shoes. People wear our shoes to go to work. They go for a walk. They go for a run. That's what they do. Nobody's playing basketball. Like, forget about it. But Sonny is just insistent that they've got to make a push. And then he's watching the video of Michael Jordan when he hits the game-winning shot. And all of a sudden, it's like his eureka moment. And it's really well-directed. He starts explaining to Affleck, look at his reaction here in this scene. Look at how he knows he's getting the shot. Even though James Worthy's the big star on this team, he's an 18-year-old freshman. But Dean Smith sets up the shot for him to take it. And look, he's so composed. He's so confident. He's so loose. Like, this guy's a killer. He's competitive. Blah, blah, blah. Enter Chris Messina. Again, the whole cast is stellar. Messina's hilarious playing David Falk, Michael Jordan's agent. Incredibly profane. At one point, he starts threatening him. He's going to you know, he's gonna take his balls. He's going to chew his scrotum. Like, just, just, just a disgusting scene-stealing scene. But essentially, he's like, Jordan's not going to come. He's like, Jordan has no interest in Nike, bro. He's either going to go Adidas or Converse. He's like, between us, might do kind of a combo deal. He's like, he's not going to Nike. There's no way. And Damon takes the very risky step, knowing this is going to piss off David Falk and potentially alienate Jordan to go right to the source. Now, the backstory is this. Affleck has known Michael Jordan for years. He said he flew out to meet Jordan and sat with him for an hour and said, okay, here's the movie. If you tell me not to make it, I won't make it. But here's what we're thinking. And what, what is your input on this? And only a couple things Jordan tells him. One, he goes, you have to have George Raveling in the movie. George Raveling is played by Marlon Wayans. He was one of Jordan's coaches, and he said he was critical because he talked to Sonny Vaccaro, Damon's character, and I really trusted George. And George was like, listen, Sonny's a good dude. You can respect him. That was very important. And the other thing is, my mom is instrumental in this story. My mom was critical in this movie. You've got to get that right. And Affleck said, he said, I made the terrible decision to ask him who should play your mom. Because, of course, if I don't get it, Michael Jordan's going to say, hey, I told you to get this person. You didn't. And without hesitation, Jordan said, Viola Davis. At the time, Affleck said in the script, there was one line spoken by Jordan's mother. He goes, well, I'm not going to get Viola Davis if there's only one line. So he rewrites the script and really beefs up Jordan's mother's role. And that's where the story really takes flight. Damon takes the very risky step. Hey, I'm going to go meet Jordan's family first. And Chris Tucker, who's, again, hilarious in the movie, this cast, all-stars. Tucker also works at Nike. And he tells him, let me tell you something about black families. The mom runs the show. And I'm sure in Jordan's family, it's a good family. I know his dad a little bit, but the mom runs the show. If you win her over, you got a chance. And sure enough, he goes to Wilmington, North Carolina, meets his dad, James Jordan, working on the car, smiles, blah, blah, sees the mom. Here's who I am, Sonny Vaccaro from Nike. I thought Mr. Falk let you know we're not interested. He's like, I just need a little bit of your time. No problem. And it's a great, great scene where Damon and Viola Davis go back and forth. And basically, he knows, if I win over the mother, we can make this happen. I'm not going to spoil anything else about the movie. I think you know what ends up happening. But I'll say this. One of the best scenes of the movie... 
It's when they're pitching Jordan, who's, again, very reluctant to be there with Nike, but it's, there's an incredible speech that Damon gives. I've never seen, as Ty Burr pointed out, such a speech so well done in the movie, and then the screenwriter patting himself on the back about the speech. Because Damon delivers the speech, Affleck directs it amazing. He shows all these scenes from the real Michael Jordan's life, and then afterwards, Tucker's like, hey, great speech, great speech. Like, it's almost like they're patting <laughs> Alex Conrad, the screenwriter, on the back, saying, hey, that was a great speech you wrote. And then the story goes from there. But I can't wait to see if he signs with Nike. Exactly. Big, big spoiler of what may actually end up happening. And that's, again, to Affleck's credit, you know the way the story ends, and yet he makes it feel riveting. Like it's a, It is a true old-fashioned crowd pleaser. And again, performances across the board. Affleck playing Phil Knight in the purple Porsche. He's got the permed hair. Damon, I think, is marvelous as Sonny. Bateman, who you normally know as a comedian, but he's very good. He's got this one terrific speech about a divorced dad, which is one of the best parts of the movie. Again, a welcome return for Chris Tucker. Marlon Wayans only has one scene, and Chris Messina as David Falk. And of course, Viola Davis, I think she'll get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Air is fantastic. It's the first great film of 2023. Wow. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. It's a very entertaining movie start to finish. You don't have to be a basketball fan to understand it, but it certainly would help. A couple of times that I tell my wife who Dean Smith is. Okay, who's Sam Bowie? Who's Akeem Olajuwon? But again, if you don't know that stuff, you'll still love the movie as well. It sounds like Jordan saved the movie because they only had one line for the character that you said kind of made the movie take off. Yeah, in many ways, Viola Davis's character is so strong because she ends up being one who's, who's smarter than everybody. You know what I mean? She's, she kind of sees the play and the formula before her, before everybody else does. At that time, there was just licensing fees. You would just sign a guy, here's $25,000, you're going to wear our shoe. She understood that the athlete, the player, had to have some equity. Hey, if Jordan's a star, he's going to get a cut of the revenue, and that's going to change things everywhere. And Sonny Vaccaro understood that as well, Damon's character, and was able to make things work. But again, it's nice to see Damon and Affleck back together again. And like Jim Miller said recently here in Cinephile, I just saw Ben Affleck directs more movies because he is a terrific director. Of course, Argo won Best Picture. I still love the town. I heard Amin criticize it that basically it's a little like it's like the best versions of this story. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like kind of like the, like people criticize the Jordan doc that it's just like, yeah, it's all his story. So it's going to kind of, you know, is, is that criticism fair of the movie? I hear what he means saying. I, I would definitely, I've been very critical of the last dance. I've said it many a time here. I thought it was not a great film. Hey, geography rather than a documentary, just glorifying yeah. in Jordan. And again, Jordan was a consultant on it. He was not going to have anything in the documentary negative towards him. So I was not as enamored of others. Although I did agree it was very entertaining. I like the stuff that was non-Jordan in The Last Dance, as I've told you. The stuff on Pippin, the stuff on Steve Kerr, Phil Jackson, yeah. great soundtrack, obviously. So yeah, Amin's point is valid, but again, if I, if I was Affleck, I'd say, well, it's not a documentary. Like, I'm just telling a story about this era. It may not necessarily be true to life, but it's true to what we're trying to say. And even he himself said, I'm sure Phil Knight wasn't crazy about the movie, but I'm playing him a certain way. It's a story we want to tell. And as I said, it's a crowd pleaser. It's not a warts and all type of movie. Besides Viola, if someone else had to get nominated, like second best performance in it. I think Damon's great in it. I think Damon, it's really hard to get a best actor nomination for a film coming out so early in the year. As I say that, everything ever all at once came out in late March, early April, same time as Air. And we all know how that ended up. Michelle Yeoh winning best actress and Kei Kwan winning supporting actress, Jamie Lee Curtis supporting actress. But generally speaking, it's really tough to get a lot of nominations for actors earlier in the year. But if I did say nominations, I'd say Damon for actor, Viola Davis for supporting actress. And I'd love to see Affleck get nominated for directing because it really is a really skillfully directed movie and it's a credit to him. If we got Ben Affleck this episode, he might not even make the cut. <laughs> that, he would. That's how good he these actually, stars he are. He actually true. would, though. He would. Yeah, he, he would. We do love Ben Affleck. <laughs> He's great. Now it's time for one of our favorite actors. Me and Chris love this guy. Check it out. 
Well, he's one of my favorite actors, two-time Academy Award nominee. His name is Michael Shannon. He is back with Waco, The Aftermath on Showtime, April 14th, five-part limited series. I binge-watched it. Michael, it's phenomenal. Congratulations on making another terrific series with Showtime. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's crazy to have two on with George and Tammy kind of back-to-back like that. Well, listen... And the first episode, you're talking with John Leguizamo, and there's this great scene where you said there's an undercurrent of rage in America, and we help to create that. Payback is coming. To me, that was so much what this series was about, the way you sow the seeds of discontent, and this was almost a precursor to what came after that. Is that how you saw that? Oh, definitely. And it, I mean, it just keeps, the dominoes just keep falling, you know? You start to wonder if you're ever going to see the end of it. Uh, but I hope the show kind of, makes people consider because uh, I think you hear a lot about uh, a lot of talk about it, but I think this comes at it in a much more visceral way where you can really feel how this has all come to be. Yeah, it's not only visceral, but I love the dialogue. I mean, some of these lines, I think it's episode three, you talked to this one character and you said, how's a nice girl like you end up being a neo-Nazi? And later <laughs> said, this is quite a lateral move from pole dancing to a member of the Aryan nation. <laughs> How much fun was it to, to dive into dialogue like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I do love the dialogue in this show. Uh, the Dowdle brothers, uh, John and Drew, I just love working with these guys. They're so smart and they and they're amazing writers and uh, they're just so easy to work with and, and fun to be around. Um, yeah, I hope to be working with them for, for years to come. They're uh, some of my favorite collaborators right now. Your character, I mean, you're playing Gary, the FBI agent, for those who did not see Waco originally. I mean, this is a guy who is just haunted. You know, you have this great sense of weight and responsibility and guilt and there's this there's scene in the episode three i think you're talking to somebody who's in prison and he's talking about you know do you hear their screams at night do you smell their burning flesh and it's really it's a tough scene and it's a tough character how much of that how much of that weigh on you playing a character who seems to be just so haunted by what happened well i have the extraordinary benefit of actually knowing the real gary nesner and being friends with Gary Nessner and being able to basically talk to him anytime I want about anything, which is uh, an amazing, amazing resource uh, for me. And when I talk to Gary, he's somebody who, despite all of the horrible things he's seen and horrible situations he's been in, is still very much able to appreciate his life and still knows how to have a good time. And I guess he's acquired that ability just through years and years of, of practice. And, and now he's retired. And, I, you know, I don't know really how much it weighs on him nowadays. But he says he's, he's kind of, I don't want to say he's gotten over it, but he, he, he can handle it. Yeah, there's a great scene. I don't, I don't want to ruin it for anybody because everyone's going to watch it. They're going to love it. Once again, Waco, The Aftermath on Showtime, April 14th, five-part limited series. You and Giovanni Rabisi got a dandy of a scene, Michael. It, it is like just two sharks circling each other. Just it, We won't tip our hands to the scene, but tell me what working with Giovanni because you guys are both terrific. Oh, thank you. I was so excited to get to work with him after all these years uh, of watching him. I was wondering if our paths were ever going to cross, and... Uh, when John and Drew told me that he was going to be on the show, I was really stoked. He is super committed uh, to his work. Uh, he does not mess around. He is always, when you see him on set, he's just, you can tell he's always thinking or running his lines or 
leaving no stone unturned. And again, he got to spend some time with the fellow he was playing, which I think he appreciated. But yeah, I just I just had a blast with him. We didn't get to socialize much because that's how serious he is. He doesn't even like go out after work or anything. I think he just goes home and, and studies. Yeah, it's always different with different guys. Once again, Waco, yeah. the after on Showtime, April 14th. As I mentioned, one of my favorite actors, so I got to do some quick quick fire here. Shape of Water, man. What a movie. Best picture. So beautifully well done. I just love everything about that. Del Toro seems like such a big, generous, big-hearted guy. The whole cast, you know, I, whenever I get mad at my kids, I turn my Michael Shannon on. What is he? You know, when you get mad at Sally Jenkins? <laughs> how are you so good at being so menacing? Oh, dear Lord. I have no idea, you know? It's not like, in my real life, it's I, I, it's not something I practice, you know. Um, I'm actually kind of a scaredy cat, really. I get easily s- scared. I don't know what it is. I guess it's just a matter of, like, having access to your imagination and your feelings, you know. I also think some of it's just my physical being, you know. I'm just a big guy. I don't know the way my head's shaped. I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I guess they're, you know, my father... God bless him. He had a bit of a temper. So maybe I took some notes from him. I don't know. It, it could be. And in Revolutionary yeah. Road, everybody was blown away, man. You got Sam Mendes, you got DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, Kathy Bates, and you steal the movie. I mean, that character mm-hmm. is so well done. It, it's it's so funny as well. Like, he's the one guy speaking the truth, but nobody else wants to say it. How did you approach that character, someone who in that era is viewed as mentally ill, but you're the one speaking the truth that nobody else wants to say? Well, yeah, my guide in 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 that one was the book. I mean, the 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 writing of that character in the book is so spectacular and and vivid and detailed. And when I read it, the book, I just that's what I saw in my head, in my imagination. And so it's oh, it's such an extraordinary opportunity to actually get to show that to other people, like what you see in your mind when you're when you're reading something. Most of us don't get a chance to do that. It just stays in there. But um, yeah, that's just what I saw when I read the book. That's what I heard and felt that that guy was. Are you one of those guys, you were talking with Giovanni earlier, doesn't really go afterwards. Are you, I don't want to say method, but are you staying in character as much as possible? Or you could say, hey, DiCaprio, let's grab a beer after the show. <laughs> uh, I don't, yeah. When we ra- when when I rap, I, I yeah, I need a little downtime just to, yeah, I wouldn't want to keep, acting after i leave the set uh that would be too much so i usually try to try to relax you also have to get a lot of sleep you know so you usually you're not up uh you don't have that much time to screw around just need to get to bed <laughs> boardwalk empire you're so good in that show i mean I, I know you had a lot of work obviously with terrence winter it was his brainchild but i'm just curious how much did you talk to scorsese you know i know he directed the pilot but i don't know was marty involved as far as talking with you with the character of that era i think the most in-depth conversation i had with the uh, Mr. Scorsese was when I went in to meet for the job, you know, because uh, I met him and Terrence and they talked at length about the premise of the show and Nelson Van Alden and how they envisioned uh, his story coming to be. And um, that was the most in-depth conversation we had. And then he directed the pilot um there was one night we had a really long night one night and it was like three in the morning and I was just sitting next to him and he just starts talking to me about so many things. It was, sometimes it would just explode out of him, you know, all these thoughts and 
historical facts and all these things. And I'm just sitting there like trying to keep my eyes open because I'm so tired. But I'm like, Martin Scorsese's talking to me. I've got to listen. I don't wake up, wake up. But it was three in the morning. So it was a struggle. Then after the uh, pilot, he kind of was pretty much behind the scenes after that. Like, I think he would watch the episodes and give notes, but he didn't he didn't come to set. He's always been a night owl, so that makes sense. He'd be at 3 in the a.m. was already with most of my life with his ideas and thoughts. Yeah. A couple more and I'll let you go. I'm a huge uh, baseball fan, so I, I'm curious. I've heard you see, again, you're born in Lexington, Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken, split time in Kentucky and Chicago with mom and dad, so grew up Cubs and a White Sox fan. And as you said, I know some people's eyes, that's a turncoat, but that's just the way I am. I'm with you. Why can't you cheer for both teams? But i got to ask you this. What were you more excited about, when the Cubs won the World Series or when the White Sox won the World Series? Wow. I don't know. When the Cubs won, I was in Toronto. I think I was shooting Shape of Shape Water, Water. Yeah, when the Cubs were. won. So it was kind of weird. I watched that happen in Toronto at a restaurant. And, yeah, I got I got a little excited. I mean, I didn't start crying or anything. Um, but it, I, I was it was kind of melancholy, you know, being on the road. But I was right by where the Blue Jays play. That's where I was staying. Uh, yeah, the White Sox, the year they won the World Series, I went to the first game of the ALCS. They were playing the Angels, and they lost. I remember Paul Bird was pitching, and he he just killed them. So they lost that game, and then they won the next eight games in a row. They The next four in the ALCS, and then they swept the series. So I was like, why did I go to one game they lost? I'm such a loser. But yeah, I was yeah, I was equally excited, I guess, for both of them. I just love that we got a Paul Bird reference because I know you were absolutely a baseball fan if you dropped that on me. Uh, it is called Waco, the aftermath. It's on Showtime, April 14th, five-part limited series. We just tip of the iceberg, Michael. I mean, all the stuff with Jeff Nichols. I love Take Shelter, of course. The Flash, you're reprising your role as Zod. George and Tammy, Funny or Die. Even, honestly, man, you're one of my favorite actors. I think you're an unbelievable talent. I can't thank you enough for giving me a few minutes. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I mean, Michael Shannon, I, I was almost upset. My previous producer, Joe, had told me one time, you got to ask Michael Shannon about this funny or die sketch. But that's a problem, Cody. He's such a talented actor. I mean, there's there's a hundred questions I want to ask him, but he was great. Dude, he's Michael Shannon. He just sees exactly, he sounded exactly like I wanted him to sound. 
Yeah. And a great Paul Bird reference. For those who didn't know, he's actually a legit baseball fan. The fact he dropped in a Paul Bird reference. If you're taking of a soft tossing 510 righty, Michael Shannon put you in that place. The Marvelous <laughs> Mrs. Maisel is one of my favorite shows on television. The final season is this Friday, and I got to talk to two of the biggest stars from that show. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel returns this Friday on Amazon Prime, and it's a pleasure to talk to the men of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the great Tony Shalhoub and Kevin Pollack. Three episodes this Friday, and then they'll be airing every week. Tony, I actually interviewed you four years ago, Critics' Choice Awards, Red Carpet. It was after the first season, and you expressed real surprise and amazement just how great the show has been. My wife met you at LaGuardia, said you were very friendly as well, just so you know. Uh, What I want to ask about is specifically my favorite scene of the show, and it's you and Kevin Pollack together the episode eight of season four, when you have the obituary for Moish. I just watched it again and I got teary-eyed again. It's such a beautiful scene. What was your approach in that scene as Abe gets emotional, giving a speech to Moish, thinking that if he had passed away, this is what he wanted to express to him? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the main thrust of that episode, uh, uh, because we're, we're, we're really always wanting to follow Midge's arc, in that episode, she has a beautiful stand-up monologue about the men in her life and how men are supposed to be the pillars of strength and stability and 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 yet it's really the women that are have the real strength it's not the doctors that that do the heavy lifting it's the nurses and and so my job in that scene was really to demonstrate how you know Abe is a you know is a capable you know quite you know successful confident guy in his in his life and as a patriarch and all of that. But when it comes to real life and death, when it comes to death, he cannot handle it. And he's, <laughs> especially when it you know comes to the death of a, of a family member, because I think subconsciously, in spite of Abe, <laughs> in spite of Abe's feelings about Moish, his, he's, he's, he's attached to him and considers him family. So that was it. It was, it was about the unease and discomfort he has in the face of of the real important stuff. And uh, I think Abe's journey through all the five seasons are about discovery, self-discovery. And uh, he realizes in that scene how connected he is to this man. He's like a brother and he, it catches Abe by surprise. Yeah, it's a beautiful scene. Kevin, I'm just curious your approach to the scene because your characters, right? Moish, come on, let's get out of that. Well, what do you want to say to me? And then he softens. It's so beautiful the way you give the thank you. Like it's just, it's a beautiful scene. How did you approach it? Well, first of all, thank you for the great question, and uh, maybe work on your your openings because you did start by saying I'm here with the great Tony Shalhoub and Kevin Pollack. Um, no, no, it's cool. I, it was uh, meant to be for both meant, greats. I apologize. Two of us. Uh huh. Yeah, it didn't really read that way. I didn't hear it that way, but I think that's what he meant. Why would you? Two greats. Uh, <laughs> I think what Kevin is looking for is it's for what, you to say, and the greater Kevin. <laughs> yeah, or decent, even. We're going to edit it in. No problem. The greater Kevin Pollack. And the better than mediocre yeah. Kevin Pollack. Surprisingly good. Um, <laughs> Surprisingly sexy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Listen, uh, it's one of my favorite moments of, of Tony's work and show because I, as moving as it is what he's to watch him in that scene of, of, of finally having to realize his love for this man and Moish that, you know, the, the two of them have sort of been at odds. As an actor, I'm sitting opposite watching him do this performance uh, multiple takes. 
And it's a very hard emotion to portray, uh, I find. Uh, laughing and crying are the two, and being drunk are the three hardest things to, to portray with any sort of connection in, of reality. And so to watch Tony do it take after take is, I'm, I can't cry on camera. I'm not talented enough. But I was crying a lot off camera when he was doing those scenes. Um, it's just so moving, and, and I remember watching it later. Um, and, and, and people's reaction, the public, to me of that season, season four, that was one of the great takeaways for, for a lot of people who approached me, again, just talking about the great Tony Shalhoub to me. <laughs> um, it's, it's something I had to make peace with <laughs> very early on. Yeah. Listen, you've always been the great Kevin Pollack when it yeah, comes whatever, to man. But, no, when cool. it comes to stand-up, everyone knows how funny you are, incredible impressions. Yeah, I'm yeah. curious your great. thoughts on on being in the world of stand-up, but yeah. like in the 50s, like the way the way that they took this role, which you know very well, but obviously mm -hmm. of, of a much different era. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent my early beginnings in the trenches of stand-up comedy. I had no formal training as an actor. I'm not proud of that fact. It just happens to be true. Um in fact, when I was asked to do Broadway, which I'm sitting next to a Tony Award-winning Broadway actor, I found it off-putting because the idea of sharing the stage with other people made no sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so to be thrown into the show to follow the trajectory of, a, of a, the origin story of a stand-up comedian was one of the toughest tests in terms of the quality of the writing and, and the performance. And a lot of my comedian friends, you know, initially when the show came on the first season, the big litmus for me was how are real stand-up comedians gonna gonna react to this? Sure. And uh, it's a great tribute to Amy and Dan, our show creator and show owners, and also of course Rachel Brosnahan's portrayal. It's astonishing how good the stand-up comedy is portrayed. And also, let's not forget Luke Kirby as Lenny Bruce is otherworldly in terms of performance. Yeah, the show is so rich with so many details. I just love the colors of it, the way it's shot. It has such a wonderful energy to it. The steady cams, I, I can't wait to see more of it. I've only got a few minutes with you guys, so I do have to ask you, Tony. When I met you previously, we talked about Big Night, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, and, and I can't say enough good things about that. But I want to ask you about The Man Who Wasn't There, which I think is criminally underrated. Your great character, Freddie Redenschneider, the way oh, he says to Billy Bob Thornton, I'm an attorney, you're a barber, you don't know anything. I love that character so much. Wow. I, I, I just want you to know how much I love that movie and that character particularly. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was a real pleasure and a privilege to be working on that with the Coen brothers. Again. Uh, with, for the second time. And, uh, but also uh, with Billy Bob and Francis McDormand, of course. So, um, you know, that movie, I, I, I wish more people had seen that movie when it first came out. I think it's got a bit of a cult following. Yeah. And it's one of my favorites, really, of things that I've done. People that know film noir know how great you are on that movie. The speeches you give, the comic timing, the way you're shoveling in all the food, it's great. And Kevin, again, for a guy who's so funny, Hockney and the Usual Suspects, unforgettable character, unforgettable movie, but I loved you in Casino. Like, I know how oh. funny you are, and I thought you were so good playing that straight character. One time, let's see, he's like, I understand, I understand. Like, he's just being given his orders as directed. What was that like working with Scorsese and, and Bob De Niro? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mentioned uh, the no professional training and the stand-up comedy background. I didn't mean to take away from the fact that I'm a multi-award-winning dramatic actor. I meant... <laughs> hold for applause. I meant that working with Bob and Marty... Oh, here we go. ...was... <laughs> 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 and, 
and Bob Richardson, one of the great greatest cinematographers in history, who I got to work with on A Few Good Men as well. Any other names you want to drop? Um, let me think. Well, Rickles was my favorite yeah. part when he would go after De Niro and Pesci. was one of my oh absolute my favorite experiences working on anything when he... Uh, said that Pesci was so short, he's going to ride him around the set like a Shetland pony in front of 200 crew and cast. That might have been my favorite moment in the history of life. Yeah, no, my, my takeaway was Scorsese, you know, his composition of any frame is so specific, but to allow the actors within that frame to do whatever they wanted, that freedom within a great filmmaker's composition was a joy I, I learned a great deal from uh, as an actor, but also as a, a director, ultimately. And then Suspects, this Academy Award-winning screenplay, we were, I was also allowed to, to improvise at times and have since asked Chris McCoy, the writer, Academy Award-winning punk with an Oscar at 26, uh, <laughs> to leave the Oscar on my mantle one week out of the year. He can have it 51. I just asked for one week. That's not asking too much. No. <laughs> because I've improvised so many of the memorable lines in that film. And then to come to full fruition to Maisel, where you can't change a syllable, and to have that um, learning experience, having not done theater, was a gift I'll, I'll never forget, truly. The most challenging and rewarding work ever. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I love the show. Cannot wait for the final season this Friday on Amazon Prime. Two absolute greats, Tony Shalhoub and Kevin Pollack. I can't thank you guys enough for the yeah, time. We... You guys were awesome. Good save. Good save. Thank you. Please come back. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Take care. Well, Kevin Pollack, a little bit annoyed by the fact that I introduced the great Tony Shalhoub and Kevin Pollack, but thank God Tony Shalhoub shaved me. He's like, no, no, this guy, he clearly meant both of us are great. And an awesome story from Kevin Pollack there about Casino. I mean, both these guys, amazing careers, but Pollock, I mean, God, if I had more time, I would have just had him do impressions. You speak of his stand-up and his impressions, Kevin Pollock, very talented guy. Dude, that's why I kind of hog this next guy, because like when oh. we talk about stand-up or improv, like it's just, these are my two of my favorite things. This guy's great. He's from Renfield. You're going to love him. Well, it's a real pleasure bringing in Ben Schwartz, the buzzy new movie, Renfield, Nicolas Cage as a vampire, a Dracula himself, and Ben is hilarious in the movie. I was able to watch it. Ben, it's, it's 87 minutes of great, gory fun, and I was thrilled, because I wasn't sure if you'd get a little tete-a-tete with Nick Cage, but you have two scenes with Dracula. <laughs> Tell me all about it, because you look like you're having a blast in this movie. Your character's really a fun, energetic villain. Go, go, go. Yeah, I, I mean, the fun thing for me is I get to play a villain. I get to be someone who, like, has fights and, you know, has chases and, you know, shoots guns, all stuff that I don't do in real <laughs> life. So it was very, very exciting. So And then to play with Nick Cage, I mean, who doesn't love Nick Cage? When I was growing up, The Rock and Con Air and Face Off. And so for all those things, like a dream come true is the best. Was this, like, your first time meeting him? Yeah, yeah. first time meeting him was during the uh, table read. Is he everything um, was, Nick Cage is supposed to be? It's everything you want him to Please. be. And he's the nicest guy. Like, he has a pet crow. Uh, he's, <laughs> like, he's he's also, like, he's so dedicated to acting. Like, when he was Dracula, he looked incredible. He committed really hard. But then in between things, when we're sitting on our chairs, I'd be like, hey, so, adaptation. I love that movie so much. Can we talk about that? And he'd be like, and he's, like, totally fine and awesome and and loved improv. Like, uh, he learned that I had a little bit of an improv background. It was fun to chat. It was just, he was a dream. Oh. I can't, I'm like, the bummer part of this movie coming out is that the press is going to be over and then I'm not going to be able to, like, be in contact with him as much. Yes. 
What did he say about adaptation? Because I love that movie too. Amazing, Charlie Kaufman. Love. It. He said it. he 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 enjoyed that film as well. We it was basically me just like remember that Chris Farley sketch from SNL where you just like oh yeah, yeah. he's talking like Paul McCartney. He's like, you remember when you did this? He's like, yeah yeah. I go, that was great. Was remember awesome. when you did? It was just me doing that Tim for like an hour. Who's the person you got to have the coolest conversation with about improv? Because I'm a huge improv fan, so I'm just like, oh wow. Get- what type of do you do long form stuff? Oh, uh, I mean no. I mean I'm I'm a podcast producer at the moment, but I do. I have done little. <laughs> classes and stuff but yeah. I, i'm just a big fan of it but for you someone in the business i'm just wondering a conversation you stumbled into that you're like holy shit i'm talking to this guy right now about improv that's a great question when i came up i took classes at the upright citizens brigade so talking to people like uh, ian roberts who was one of the founding members was a huge that was like a big class for me he uh he took the weight out of he's like try, don't people sometimes try to make jokes and try to be funny so hard that it gets in the way of the scene yes. and they don't allow the scene to grow and like become something. And so he did a class once where he said, um, just come, someone come on stage and just be truthful and honest, just react to what I'm saying. And we can have a great scene. You don't have to push or anything. Yeah. And we did it. And I was the person he called on and I'm so anxious to try to make, you know, like when you're at the beginning, you're like, Oh my yeah. God, there's too much dead air, but he was amazing. And it just showed me that that's possible. And it was huge. It was a huge lesson for me. It's awesome, especially in Renfield. You got a really funny relationship with your mom in there. I just keep thinking of like all these movies with villains and their moms, like Cagney and White Heat. What was that like, that relationship, <laughs> playing with that in Renfield? She's like a legend also. She's like, you know, I'm not sure in that is an incredible actress. It was amazing. I think the, I think the fun of playing a villain, like the way that I want to do it is that he, he basically tries to kill people and do drugs, I mean, to impress his mommy. Like he has such mommy issues that he's like doing all these terrible things to just try to make his friends like him. It's kind of pathetic. So like, I think if you see like the little gears turning in your villains, you care about them a little bit more. And you're like, this guy's such an, like he's doing it for the wrong reasons and blah, blah, blah. So I love the idea that he's like a mama's boy and he's like, he just wants to make his mom proud, but his mom would be proud if he killed people. And like, they were the number one, you know, gang in the world. How well versed were you in Dracula prior to the movie? Like, are you a big Bela Lugosi guy? Love Bela Lugosi, but because I'm a comedian, I probably saw Leslie Nielsen in that Mel Brooks uh, Dracula, Dracula Dead Loving movie. Yeah, 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 more yeah. than I've seen any other Dracula, which is, you know, you go to these things and we're getting, you know, uh, interviewed by like the biggest gore and the biggest horror places. And they're like, what are your Dracula's like? Oh, my God. Remember that Mel Brooks movie? And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, but it, that's one of my faves. I remember the scene. That's all I remember for the movie is there's a doctor at one point. It's like, give him an anima. Give him another one. Give him another one. I, that's all I remember from Dracula. did love it. I can't. I wonder if I watched it today what it would feel like. <laughs> um, you've done amazing work as far as a voice actor I said to my son Dean he's upstairs he was watching I said I'm talking to this guy Ben Schwartz and he goes I know he is I go he's Randy Cunningham ninth grade ninja and he goes oh, oh he's wow. also yeah he knew right away and then, I, and then he said he's also Sonic and I was like yeah he, he is Sonic I mean, that's for a someone that grew movie. up I'm like four, I'm 41 right now and so I grew up on DuckTales and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and then I went and voiced uh, Dewey and DuckTales and voiced Leonardo and Turtles and Sonic. So I got to kind of live all those like beautiful little dreams I had as a kid. It's been amazing. It's been my voiceover career I've been doing since, you know, for 20 years now. And it's been one of my favorite things to keep doing. And it seems like an incredibly tough nut to crack. I remember Sean Astin, I once read a story, like it took him like a hundred auditions to get voice work. And he's like a known actor from Lord of the Rings. Like it's, it's a really tough arena to get into. So kudos to you for doing so. Yeah. And I started by when I wasn't really, I was barely in TV. I was doing a lot of commercials, voiceover commercials, and finally got Randy Cunningham. And that went on for a bunch of years. And that's how I started. My career really started to take off from there. So I had this whole voiceover career on the side while I was building up all my other stuff at the same time. So it's really fun to like 
be a VO artist and then start to break a little bit in the real world and then get a little bit bigger roles and stuff like that. It was really fun. Who was your favorite Ninja Turtle? Oh, well, listen, as a kid, it's usually Michelangelo. I mean, mm -hmm. he's the party dude. What are you going to do? Not love Michelangelo? <laughs> but because I was a little nerd, I really liked Donatello. Um, and then for our iteration of it, Leonardo was always just the leader. And this one, he's like Bill Murray. I made him more like Bill Murray, where he's like wisecracking and stuff like that. So he's like the jokey guy now. Nice. That's awesome. It's a great, yeah. great work. Like I said, how about Sonic? Again, you're working. I mean, Jim Carrey's the villain. I don't know if you get to, got to meet Jim. Did you get to at least see him a little bit? Yeah, we've like, done. Yeah. So we've done two movies together. So I got to hang out with Jim a little bit. And the best is the press is when you kind of meet everybody when, you know, if you don't have a ton of stuff, because I do all my stuff in front of a microphone so um he was incredible that's the person by the way when you're talking about i mean cool i sat down and talked to him about i mean he's literally responsible for the biggest movies of my life i like dumb and dumber to me is a top five movie of all time still i love that movie so he's responsible for teaching me what comedic acting is when i say dead left shrimp to you what does that mean to you it means the best guy. Also, someone I do bits with on Twitter, which is very exciting. Um, he's he's the best. Him and Roy Hibbert for Parks were yes. the best. I'm also like a huge NBA fan. So um, me growing up, he was enormous. He was huge. So when I got to play with him, it was it was amazing. Although by the time I got to shoot around with him during Parks and Rec, his knees were already all messed up and he couldn't really uh, go bananas. But he, you know, he was dominant. Now, we're actually kind of friends with, I work on the Levitard show as well, and uh, Dan Levitard show, and we're friends with Mike Schur. So I was, just oh, wondering if I, could, I was just wondering if I could get you to say anything bad about Mike Schur that I could get <laughs> no, to go viral. The on he's literally the best person. John Ralphio, that role that he cast me um, is uh, b very responsible for getting people to kind of know my name way more than it was before and change the trajectory of all the stuff. And it was just supposed to be like, uh, he brought me in for one scene in one episode and then right when I did the rehearsal of the episode, he came to the rehearsal and he whispered in my ear, you'll be coming back. And then he went upstairs to the writer's room and then they wrote me in a whole bunch of episodes. Uh, I guess it's so he's, I love him. I can't wait to work for him again. I love saying his words. When the audience latches onto a character like that, basically the question is, did you enjoy doing John Ralphio as much as the people liked it? I love that character. And Amy has yeah. the best way of doing it. I, Cause he can come across kind of like a douchebag. Yeah. But the way that I always wanted to play him was I thought that he, he thinks he's always nailing it. He never thinks he's being rude. He right. thinks he's crushing it. He thinks he's doing exactly what yeah. people think is cool. <laughs> and so Amy had the best line where she's like, it's, you can't ever get mad at him because he's like, he thinks that he's doing great. He doesn't know he's <laughs> making mistakes. So he, she says he's like a puppy that like, if he pees on the rug, you're, you don't yell. You're like, oh, John Ralphio. <laughs> so I always, that, and then he got crazier and crazier as the seasons went where Mike Scher said to me, I think you should just pop up out of nowhere. You shouldn't even enter scenes. Have him <laughs> pop up behind this couch and he just appears. And I was like, of course, 100% we're doing that. And we yes. did that. It was amazing. The thing is about comedy today, Ben, like, again, as you said, you've worked in as a voiceover artist. You've done comedies. The one thing I miss is you don't see as many comedies on the big screen right now. Like, you're talking yes. about the Jim Carrey movies. We love those movies, right? We love seeing The Hangover. There's something about Mary laughing at a big screen. Do you lament the fact we don't see those big screen comedies as much anymore? Because I do. It's a huge, uh, it's so funny bringing it up because I grew up with, we all grew up with Steve Martin movies and Jim Carrey movies, Bill Murray movies, Eddie Murphy movies. And now there's so few comedies that come out in theaters. And to me, like, uh, I see all these horror movies do so well in theaters. And I think it's because as a group, people like having a reaction together. So in my head, wouldn't it be the same thing with comedy? Like the same way where we're, where I'm selling out improv tours at places and like people like coming and watching it and laughing together. So 
it really bums me up because also I write movies for studios and it's really, really very hard to those like 10, $15 million comedies that were like not very expensive, but like they don't exist anymore. Um, and if they do, they, they're like, it's a rom-com on a streamer, which is fine. I love, you know, I've done a billion of them. I love them, but um, I really miss it. And I, I try to figure out why. And I, I'm not sure if I have an answer. I think, um, you know, the, I think like things like a cocaine bear really helps if Renfield hits that really helps and showing that you can do a little bit off off the path things and making people laugh, I think that's huge. So I think they're may, we're slowly getting people to trust uh, enough. But for them, it's a business. If the movie doesn't make enough money, why would they do it? And comedy, I guess, doesn't travel internationally as well as other things. So I think we're trying to figure out how to make it work right now. So streamers kind of have saved comedies in a little bit. And now we're hoping that maybe we can start branching out. So Renfield, that's another big thing about Renfield. Like, it's really funny. It's written by a guy who... Uh, wrote for Rick and Morty, uh, uh, his name is Ryan Ridley. And so if those type of comedies start really working, then we're in incredible shape. As I said, you're such a busy guy. Any other upcoming projects you want to promote? Anything you're working on right now before we wrap? Because I feel like you got 12 different things on the go. I'm writing a bunch of stuff for some places, which are very exciting. But the biggest thing for me is I have an improv tour called Ben Schwartz and Friends. And um, I'm touring right now and I'm playing Radio City Music Hall, which is an insane idea for a long form improv show to ever play that venue. So um, everything's on rejectedjokes.com and you can buy tickets and I'm coming to a bunch of cities. I'm coming to London. I'm coming to New York. And um, it's a big way to get long form improv out there. And it's a big way for my friends and I to kind of like have some fun and stuff. So it's been it's been a blast. Not thinking of money at all, because you do a lot of different things, improv, acting, voiceover. What is like the most fulfilling? You walk off stage and you're like, man, that felt good. The um, improv is instant gratification. So improv is I say a joke and I can find out immediately if people like it every other part of my career is years you like when i act Wait. in renfield we did it a year ago and when i right. write movies the movies i'm like hopefully making next year i wrote two years ago so the jokes i wrote two years ago i'm finding out if anybody cares about them in three more years so <laughs> in terms of gratification uh the moment of acting on camera with someone that i really respect and love it's like amazing working with nick cage and getting that moment is amazing but in order to get any feedback there's nothing better than live doing something live. It's like you get it. It exists in that moment. And then because improv, that show disappears, it'll never happen again. And I love that moment of all of us living in there and laughing and enjoying something and forgetting about everything for a little bit. That's probably always be the most fun. When you write a script though, do you sometimes feel like you've seen it too much or looked at it too much and something, a, a joke is less funnier to you? Like how do you get to bounce it, off, bounce it off other people? Like how do you deal with that? Sometimes you have to be careful sometimes not to blow. I'm literally writing something now that I've written. This is I'm writing a movie for Sam Rockwell and I for Searchlight. And it's, it's probably the third draft. I can talk about it because it was announced a couple of years ago. Yeah. But it's like sometimes like jokes that I loved at the beginning, I've just read yeah. so many times that you don't – it's hard to like – That's scary. So you have to make sure that you don't get yourself away from something just because you've read it a hundred times. And when someone else reads it, they love it, blah, blah, but. Also, looking at things with fresh eyes, sometimes I'll read some of my dialogue and be like, oh, I don't find this funny at all right now. I want yeah. to try something else and kind of play and, and whatever. So the writing is, I'm sure you guys know, writing is just you rewrite a thousand times. You're yeah. never not rewriting. It's so, you're never done. Unless yeah. like they're finally like, let's green light it and go. You could keep rewriting and rewriting and it's, it's, it could be the most treacherous thing in the world. Yeah, it's exhausting. David Mamet once said, he goes, you just go to the typewriter and just cut yourself and let it bleed. Since you mentioned Rockwell, did you see him in American Buffalo? Because he was unbelievable. He was unbelievable in that. That production was great, and he was 
off the charts incredible. He was so inspiring. Are you guys in New York? Yeah, I'm in New Jersey, so I was able to see the show. Chris is in Florida, but I went. A buddy of mine flew down from Toronto. I said, "We got to go see this Rockwell Dude, Fishburne he was, in a he was play. So good, I was so impressed. Sam's incredible. He's a he's a powerhouse. The fact he did teach him, like Duvall's done that role, Pacino's done it, Dustin Hoffman, and like Rockwell, it, it was awesome. And he uh, loves awesome theater. He loves all that stuff. He loves talking. Like loves he loves the idea of who's done it before him. He's very aware of all that stuff. How long were you at SNL? You, you wrote for SNL. Songs? I was never at SNL, but I freelanced. I used to facts and jokes. Okay. I was just like, I was just going to ask about that time. And what was that like? Did you get stuff on air? Like, was it frustrating? Did you write bulks of stuff and got like, I got, so two I only freelance for weekend update. So okay. uh, weekend update every now and then would ask people. So at the time I was freelancing for faxing and jokes to Letterman and okay. faxing and jokes to weekend update. And I've all, I got two jokes on that's there the whole, my whole, uh, we, my whole SNL freelance <laughs> writing career is two jokes on weekend update. Did they go you well? Or the they jokes big ones? What's the joke? They yeah. went, they went like, um, they were very, they're very risky jokes. I think are very like weird jokes where the laugh was like, oh, yeah, I love those. Yeah, those <laughs> are like the best. the best though. Those are like the best. I know. I got to uh, find them. I haven't thought about them so long. All right, I know all we're right, going to hear these jokes though. Sonic 3 next year. Is that right? I'm hoping we all get to do it. They're all, it's, it's in the cards. My hope is that we all get to do it. How fun if we all get to come back and I get to be Sonic again and Jim Gary gets to come back. That would be I mean, it would be amazing, especially because like Mario just came out and did so well. Yes. I was like, let these video game when video game oh. movies do well. I'm such a video game fan, so yeah. I hope we get to keep making them because I mean, I love that franchise. So I love that those Sonic movies to me are some of my favorite things that I've been a part of. I love them. Speaking of Mario Brothers, Bowser, Jack Black, fantastic. But well, that's a story for another time. I have ben to see. Shrek. I haven't seen it yet. I can't wait. I oh, literally yeah, can't wait. I'm so excited. You're going to love it. I want everyone to go see Renfield this Friday in theaters. Ben Schwartz is hilarious in the movie. It's bloody, gory, fun, 87 minutes. It's really, really well done. And obviously, Ben's had a prolific career, done so much great stuff. Check out Parks and Rec and, of course, all his excellent voice work. Randy Cunningham, Ninja Turtles, all the rest of it. And we're going to find his two jokes on SNL. Ben, great job, man. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Nice to chat with you. All right. Take care. Peace. All right, loaded guest today. Honestly, big time thanks to Michael Shannon, to Tony Shalhoub, to Kevin Pollack, and to Ben Schwartz. Next week here on Cinephile, a review of the Super Mario Brothers movie, which I've already seen, but I want to save it until next week. And we're also going to have major, major guests, Ray Romano, the stunning Monica Bellucci, and director Catherine Hardwick. Four guests this week, three guests next week. This is where your place is to be if you're a movie fan. It's Cinephile, and I'll see you at the movies. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details